Dogger and Muddy family had some heartbreak this past week. Amy Kernow, our narrator, and her husband, Mark Solomon, lost their beloved dog, Melvin. Muddy, me, and the rest of the damn show team sends their thoughts and prayers to Amy and Mark. Check out Amy's Facebook and Instagram page to view her tribute to Melvin. Rockers call Jim Suler a blues artist, while blues artists call him a rocker. I know this much. Jim kicks ass on the guitar. Muddy has handed his mic to Jim, so let's jump in and see what he has to say. Following Jim's interview, we will have Treehouse Studio observations. Amy, can you get us started? This is the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Listen up. It's all about the music. Let's check in on the artists, songs, and people behind the scenes. Are you listening? All right, campers, here we are at the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Muddy, in fact, uh, my chuck lab and partner, has handed over the mic to Jim Suler. Jim's a native son of Dallas and is one of the figureheads of blues music in the DFW area and beyond. He wears multiple music hats. Just a couple are fronting his band Jim Suler and Monkey Beat, and as the lead guitarist for George Thurgood and the Destroyers. Last week on the Dogger and Muddy Music Show, our guest confirmed he is one of our uh, one of your favorite fans, Eric Nadell from the Texas from Texas Ranger baseball fame. You played, in fact, you played at his event this past Sunday, Cafe Momentum. Your relationship with Eric goes way back. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me, Doug, and thanks, Absolutely. Muddy. Don't, <laughs> Muddy's reclining in the corner right now. Um, yeah, Eric. I've actually first met Eric at the. Uh, I think it was called the Blues Bandits uh, Barbecue. It was over at Lake Cliff Park probably four, five years ago. And, uh, of course, I was a fan of his through listening to Ranger broadcasts on the radio, very aware of his career. And he told me he'd been coming to see me play since the early 1990s. Awesome. And, and it was a fan of mine, and I was, like, you know, blown away by that because I have a lot of respect for him. He's yeah, a Hall of Fame broadcaster and uh, kind of a renaissance man. There's a lot of things he knows how to do that people aren't aware of. And just it turned out to be a super nice man and a sincere music yes. fan with a deep love for music and really appreciates it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've gotten to be friends and, you know, I've gotten uh, emails from him like during games. Like, I'm thinking, shouldn't you be like... <laughs> Like calling the Yankees in the Rangers game, but he's been very kind to me, and you know he's a you know uh, I'll go like up and say hi to him if I'm at the ballpark, and that's cool. Yeah, and he came out. He was in Toronto for for the Blue Jays Rangers game, and I was playing at Massey Hall with George Thorogood, and he came out. He, they'd flown in and were playing the next day, and he came to the show and was. He had a great time, and yeah, he mentioned that he, he said he said Massey Hall is really nice. It's if any of you people listening ever get a chance to go to Massey Hall in Toronto, it's an iconic venue, one of the best listening and performance rooms I've ever played in anywhere. It's certainly one of my favorite places to play. I love I've it. I've been real lucky in that regard. I love it. And then also he uh, 
for your live album at the Kessler, he is your introduction piece for that live album. He is. I, I must confess that he did his introduction later in the studio. He was yeah. uh, out of town or out of the, I think he was in Cuba or something. Uh, when we recorded the record, he wasn't around, but was gracious enough to come over to Audio Dallas when we were mixing it and add an introduction. That's so cool. Yeah. Of course, he nailed it, you know. Right, right. He's got that booming voice, like you said earlier, when so, we were yeah, talking. He's a cool guy. Yeah. All right. So you're growing up here in Dallas. What led you What led you to falling in love with the blues? Or did you fall in love with the blues first when you started on your musical path? No, uh, I wasn't even aware of it as a child. Um, first stuff I was aware of was like the Beatles. And sure. Paul Revere and the Raiders, the Monkees, whatever was on KLIF, the Mighty 1190. And I, the first records I bought were like by those groups. Sure. You know, at age six. That was a big influence on me. And then as I got older, I started listening to a lot of blues-based rock and roll. I, I really enjoyed early teens and stuff like the Allman Brothers and a lot yeah. of the Southern rock bands and, of course, Rolling Stones and so on and so forth, the usual suspects from early and mid-'70s. And noticed, you know, I was really, like, really responded to the blues tracks that were on there. Uh-huh. And I loved, and I started, and I'm a big fan of history. I'm, I'm really intrigued by history, so it went hand-in-hand. Hand. So I started investigating you know, well, who's T-Bone Walker? He wrote this song. Right. Who's Willie Cobb or who's Robert Johnson? Coincidentally, my mother's family is from Mississippi. Ah. And her grand, her, her mother is a Stovall. Okay. And Muddy Waters sharecropped on a Stovall plantation. That's right. And I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent about how I feel about that. I mean, I like the connection, but the system it represented, I don't like. Correct. My grandfather was the adjutant general of the Mississippi National Guard in 1927 when the the Great Flood came. Yeah. And he was in charge of that levee camp in Greenville, Mississippi, where they wouldn't let the refugees out because the planters were afraid they wouldn't come back. They'd all, like, flee, and they wouldn't have any labor. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of mixed feelings about all that. Sure. You know, because I read up on it. I, I found uh, newsreel footage of the flood that contained my grandfather. Holy God. I went looking for it. Yeah, and, and, right. And, and sure enough, there's Herbert Hoover, who was, I think, Secretary of the Interior at the time. And I guess the president sent him down to survey the damage. And he's on a boat with my grandfather. And my grandfather's smoking a cigarette. And my dad told me. He died before I was born. I never met him. Yeah. My grandmother's father ran for governor against uh, Bilbo, who was the notorious racist, yeah. in 1915, and he lost. He was a state treasurer as well. Wow. So my connection to that yes. culture is, was there. It existed. And, I, and when I heard Robert Johnson and Charlie Patton, it, it was just I'm, – I'm getting hair standing up my arms right. now because I remember the first time I heard that stuff and just the visceral reaction I had – how familiar it was, yeah. and how different my reaction may have been from like one of my ancestors. Yeah. My point of view is is different on it. I, I didn't have the baggage, the cultural baggage of the time, right. to like filter my my view or experience of it. So that's how I got into it. And the more I I learned, the more I loved it. And I'm still an outsider, just playing my version of it. I don't pretend to be 
like a real blues guy. I've never been really comfortable with being called that because I know real blues guys, you know. But I I just try to do it honorably and and not make a mockery of it because it's something that's a sincere love for me. I really love it, but I'm not entirely comfortable in that description or if that makes sense. I mean, I'm I'm flattered by the nice things you said in your your introduction, but I'm just a, you know— a white guy from East Dallas that grew up on blues-influenced rock and roll and and whatever I heard on the radio. I mean, I, I listened to a lot of things. And, you know, the blues people consider me a rock guy, and the rock people call me a blues guy. Interesting. I mean, Bugs Henderson was kind of the same way. That's a good example, yeah. He was a big influence on me early on. He was the first. Stevie and Jimmy had already... Vaughn had already moved to Austin. Okay. I don't think I... I, I kind of read about him in Buddy magazine and... Yeah. I was too young to go to clubs. I didn't have any older brothers or sisters, so I had to. It took me a few years longer to get to a lot of these people than some of the other folks in the area who had older brothers. Like my keyboard player Sean Ferris, his older brother Scott played in bands with Stevie, and went to school with Jimmy and you know Cliff. Yep, right here. So I didn't have that introduction. It took me a little longer to get there. Fast. So that's how I got into that. Guitarists, one of their goals over time is to create their own style, their own tone. How can you share with us how you work that and how you develop that? To me, the technique and the and the chops and stuff is just a it's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. And I mean, it took me a while to figure that out because I was real impressed by technique and speed right. early on, and then I came to regard like the song is more important. And, and the other stuff is just like icing on a cake. Right. You know, it's not a it, so many things I hear like in blues rock are just like speed bumps waiting for a solo. I've just tried to, to be more song oriented. Now, if I play live, I stretch it out because I have a lot of time to fill. And, you know, I like to do some improvisational stuff, too. But as far as like tone and sound, I just something is just pleasing to my ear you know and i'm i'm yeah. not cons- it's it's not it stopped being a competition to me a long time ago i'm just competing with myself yeah. i try to remind myself of that a lot cuz you'll always come up short if you're whoever you are if you're going right. to compare yourself to somebody else cuz we all have different skill sets and we're all in different places in our lives and think of all the great guys that never got recorded out there like right. in, in that were lost to history. It's just through that, you know, an accident of a time and place, somebody got on record. Right. And now they're revered, you know, and whoever they learn from may be completely forgotten. Right. Yeah, The what the Lomaxes did, traveling around recording all that stuff, is invaluable. But like you said, I mean, there's there's so many people that, that influence them that we'll never know. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I just try to, uh, I don't know if that even answered your question, no, yeah, it's a, all that stuff's just a, a way to tell your story or whatever you're trying to convey. Yeah. Well, obviously, your story's been well-received by your audience, but also it ends up it's been well-received. You've been used, your music has been used on some movies and TV shows, right? I was real f- flattered when, like, uh, they put the Big Lebowski out on Blu-ray DVD, and it's in the trailer for that because it's, like, one of my favorite films. Yeah. Well, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So um, this is one of my favorite films. I I don't have it up yet, but I got one of my pictures for my wall is of uh, Jeff Bridges and his dude. Yeah, that that's that movie gets more 
even if I had no connection with it, I loved it before that happened, and it gets more important to me with each passing year. And, and the movie Spun, I don't know if you remember that, with uh, Brittany Murphy and John Leguizamo. It was okay. about like uh, a speed dealer. Okay. And I had a song called Bad Stretcher Road. And there's that's also in the trailer. That's not actually in the film, but those are more two of the more high profile films. And there's been some others. Uh, uh, well, and on TV, it's what Lucifer is that right? That show on Fox, uh, Lucifer. They were using my song "Devil and Me." Also, like there's a local filmmaker, Mark Birnbaum, who's used a lot of my music for some documentaries on PBS. So yeah, I've, I've been real lucky in that regard. I've actually started doing this some on certain movies that we're watching at home. We'll put on the word word transcription stuff underneath. And it's become fascinating because the songs that they play, I've, you know, I'm just kind of listening to the songs because I know them in my head, but the words of the songs aren't running through my head as I'm watching this movie. And you're watching the movie and you're going, oh my goodness, this, this song is telling the story of the movie so clearly now. Mm-hmm. So it opened my eyes a little bit to that. Another big influence on me was the soundtrack album of Ry Cooter stuff. It was like a compilation of his best yeah. soundtrack work. Yeah. And it, 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 it started making me think about music, not necessarily verse, chorus, verse, bridge, form, but just, you know, like sound painting, as Jimi Hendrix called it. Right. You know, so I, I will use a lot of that stuff in my live show as transitions between songs, segues because I don't like a lot of dead air during the show. For instance, if I have to change a guitar, I'll have the band vamp or start doing that so there's no dead air, because when there's dead air, people start looking, uh, focusing on other things, look at their watch, think about when right. they got to go home. Get a conversation going. Right, and then decide, well, maybe... Run off to get a beer. It, exactly. So it, it helps you keep your audience, too. And it's and you're not confined to a like a song form. It it may not be great for dancing, right? But I'm I'm not always gearing what I do to being a that kind of band. It's as much a performance band, listening band, as it is something it's you can dance to. You can dance to it, right? Some of it, not oh, all of it. I mean, I don't dance anyway, but <laughs> I know a lot of people like to dance, so I have to make those concessions. Good. Well, let's take a break here. I want you to play a song for us. So can you tell us a little bit about this song you're going to play? It's uh, the Johnny Winter classic, Dallas. I always like that. And, and I love Dallas for all its good stuff and, and, and its flaws. And uh, I don't know that I've ever heard a really positive song about Dallas. Probably the best one or closest would be Jimmy Dale Gilmore's have you ever seen Dallas from a DC nine? Right, night? But exactly. Most of them are talking yeah. about what a tough town Dallas is in one yeah. way or another. Well, it's, it's history long ago is pretty dark. It, it it truly is, and that's that would be another interview. But this song is uh, by Johnny Winter called Dallas, and it was about his visits to Dallas in the '60s as an albino hippie. Oh, which was a pretty much a redneck jungle, and damn right, and how he reacted to it. Cool. So, all right, I'll let you set up. RIP Johnny Winter.
Texas man I'm bound to step in song Right back to Dallas Jim, that was fascinating. What I one of the things I love about it. This is the first time I've uh, had somebody record with a national. Can you tell the audience? I mean, the history of a national guitar is really big in the blues world. Can you tell us a little bit about the national guitar? Well, it's made out of steel, and it's uh, it's a very loud guitar. Before electric guitars, it was the loudest guitar you could play. Right. And uh, Sunhouse, the great Delta blues musician, also said it would work great as a weapon in a bar fight or in a juke joint <laughs> because it was made of steel and it was pretty heavy and it was hard to damage it. I mean, if you hit somebody over the head with it the right way, you could you put you could them out, mess up their world pretty hard. Uh, but it's it's got a very distinctive, loud, almost a banjo tone, but darker. Uh, and this particular instrument was. Made 1931. 1931. It's a, it's a, a Duolian single coil resonator. Got it probably in 1992. Wow. How long have you? Oh, yeah. So you've had it since 92. And then I, I heard you mention before we started the interview that uh, one time up on stage it, it, it slipped off and you, heart, you broke your heart, right? It broke my heart and it, it cracked the headstock. I mean, it splintered it. The the neck was broken. I had to send it back to the company National, which is still in operation. And they oh, repla- I didn't know that they replaced the neck. It was in the late nineties when that happened. But yeah, I was heartbroken. I just wanted to cry. With, with being a historian, your connection back to Mississippi, can you lay out for some of the blues artists that probably played the National? Booker T. Washington White, known as Booker White, uh, Sunhouse, uh, you know, guys outside of the Delta, like Blind Boy Fuller, uh, 
Kokomo, Kokomo Arnold. There's some modern guys did it too. Bob Brosman is yeah. a white guy. He was a great guitar player. I learned a, I learned this lick from him, where you hit the harmonic and then slide your slide up the neck. It's like it it makes a ghost harmonic, which Ooh. is even an octave higher. And I did it once when I was hanging out with Joe Bonamassa, and Joe sure. was like, "What's that?" And so I sh- showed him that, and I didn't think there was anything I could show him. Uh, Joe, Joe's got like a like a crazy vo- guitar vocabulary, so I went and saw him play years later. And bingo, and he did it in the show. <laughs> and I wanted I wanted to stand up and go, "Hey, I, I'm hey, right here. That from me, <laughs> I'm right here. Give me a plug, dude." <laughs> but it works on electric really good. So I, I you know, uh, there, a lot of people still will play those, but you see a lot of like the cheaper knockoffs. You don't see the real right. old ones around. And I'll actually travel with it. But once I got a pretty good scare, I was going to Europe and I checked the back, checked it and had to change planes in Chicago. Well, I, it didn't show up in Europe. Oops. It was before the internet, so I was like trying to, you know, figure it out on the phone and it, right. it had been left on the tarmac at O'Hare airport. And I just said, send it. I had it sent back to Texas to somebody's house, to a friend. Yeah. So I didn't want to try to like, I, I figured they would mess it up if they tried to send it to Europe. Right. Right. So I've had a couple of scares with it, but when you're picking out a guitar, how do you go about picking out a guitar? I would assume you probably now have, your your core your core gigs, but how, or do you still keep changing and playing new stuff? I only buy them as I need them. I, I don't I don't buy that many. I mean, I don't have. I probably have twenty guitars, <laughs> but I, I you know and I'll play four or five on a show because I use different tunings and I, each has different like right. sound qualities or properties to them. Sure. Uh, I wish I could. I'm trying to scale down, but I just you know when you pick it up and it feels right. It's then it's the right guitar. I guitars that cost fifty dollars that I'll record with. Good. They just they've got the grease on it and it sounds good. Yep. Well, like Stevie Ray Vaughan's core guitar was something. It was kind of in the junk heap over at Charlie's, I believe. Right. I think he bought that at, at in Austin. Oh, did he? Okay. Number one. Uh, but like Rory Gallagher, the late Irish guitar player, yes. had a beat up like '62 Strat. Yeah. Kind of really torn up. I know Jimmy Thackeray's got one that's real beat up. Uh, I've got a beat up '75 Strat, yeah. where like the wood is literally rotted away from the sweat, like where I rest my right yep. arm. Yep. Playing it since I was 14 years old. Oh my goodness! I'm 57 now. I still play it. So is that? So you got to take two guitars with you for the next three months. You can't take any more. Is that one of the ones you take with you? Yeah, and I'll take a Strat. I, I mean, I, I love Gibsons, but I think you can always approximate a, a Gibson sound with a Strat more than you could get a Fender sound with a Gibson. Okay, that's an interesting. I, mean, way I, to I can look get at closer it. to it, you know. Um, but I, I love Gibsons. Like I'll play Gibson. I won't play F- uh, Fender guitar with George Thorogood. Oh, really? It doesn't it? It, get, it gets it gets swallowed on stage. You know, to me, playing a doesn't keep up sonically. You know, yeah. I, I play a Les Paul or a SG. Okay. With okay. with George, it, it 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 melds better when this when they're blended. When you're working through your creative process, writing a song, how do you how do you do that? And in turn, 
Has it changed over the years as to how you approach it? Sometimes a new instrument will inspire songs. Okay. Somebody gave me a cigar box guitar, a three-string guitar. Sure. And I wrote this song, Texas-Sippy, about growing up in Texas and Mississippi. Uh, that inspired that song. And that $50 guitar I mentioned, that inspired uh, a couple of songs on the Bad Juju record. Actually, on the Shake album, as far back as 94, 95, it, it gets a real like uh, dirty, lo-fi, Hound Dog Taylor-type sound. Yeah. It's just, yeah, so, but, the, you know, I often I'll have a title. I'll, I like to start with a title so right. I know where I'm going. And I just have like a catalog of, of melodic ideas or chord progressions, riffs, whatever, and I try to like marry the right one with the, with the right title. Does this, does this feel good or does this theme work with this musical motif? So now when you go into the studio... Do you have it all nailed out for every member of the band, or do you work work with the different players in different different ways in the production of the actual song? Well, I mean, ideally, that's all done pre-production. Yeah, things always change when you're recording. I'm not as uh, hyper-rehearsed as I used to be when I went in, it's because when the band was young, we had nothing else, you know. We had no other jobs. We lived really close to each other. We were playing full-time. I wasn't in George Thorogood's band. Right. I had the financial incentive to to go work as much as I could. If we weren't playing gigs, we were rehearsing. So I, I developed a lot of my material that way. I would come in. The chord progression may be done, but the guys in the band would add their own little flourishes. Now the process is it's more incumbent on me to have this stuff developed fully when I present it to them because we just don't have the time. We live like everybody yeah. lives like an hour apart. A lot of these guys have a lot of other things on their plates, so I don't have the time to develop it, and I'm not working as much due to the fact that I'm out with George a lot. Yeah. And there's just, you know, not, it, it, again, it's like I, I don't want to be in the van constantly out of town uh, unless I'm, like, promoting a new record or working the record. Correct. Just, I mean, I, I don't mind working hard. I want to work smart. Right. So it's, yeah, I have to develop things a little more before I, presented to the band now cool well as your two primary roles in the world of music one is being a front man for uh, jim suler and monkey beat and the other is being the superstar side guy with george how do you approach those two gigs well transitions used to be a lot easier uh, like just going from one to another i think a lot of it's just getting older too you know um, I don't know. I just try to, sh it's really not, I mean, obviously there's a lot more on my plate with fronting my own band. Right. The same things still apply. I mean, you have to play the songs correctly and listen, right. you know, listen, don't just fill every, every hole with a note. I mean, I, I've learned the value of space okay. in the music, right. you know, through guys like Anson Funderburg and Jimmy Vaughn, yeah. who, I mean, it, it's like a conversation. It's, yes. would you, you're not listening to an auctioneer, you know, you want to uh, like a good actor knows how to use space and the cadence and like the tone of the voice right. and pauses for effect. And that's, that's a lesson I have to learn and remind myself of every time I play because, or you just fall into this autopilot of playing 
licks rather than like playing notes that relate to what else is going on. Right. The, the lyrics obviously tell a story, but what's beautiful, and I think you do it very, very well, is is the actual notes need to tell a story too. Well, everything's supporting everything else. And I don't know, it's trite, but you've heard it before. It's like the spaces are just as important as the notes, but it's so true. All right, you've had an extensive career. One of the last gigs I saw you at, you mentioned somebody that had passed in from your band. So you've had some losses. You want to share anything about the emotions of that as you've gone through your career? That's Music's been the only thing that's gotten me through loss in my life. Okay. I, I don't think I would even... I hate to think where I'd be without music. It, it was something my... When I got interested in it, it was obvious I really wanted to do it. I was, it was like, well, that my dad was like, well, that's nice, but you need something to fall back on. You don't want to be an old oh, musician yeah. who never made it. My brother was like that because my dad's uh, half-brother was a, like a band leader around town. He just like played like Glenn Miller stuff. And, right, you know. sure. Yeah, my mom died when I was six. Yeah. The records I had like got me through, just like. Beatles records or yeah. like AM radio. Every time there's been some loss in my life. My daughter died when I was like 41. She was 18. Ooh. I threw myself into work so hard. I was in a different marriage. And yeah. Within three years, you know, I was divorced out of that. A lot of it was because I was away working so much. That was yeah. the salve for my wound. There were other things, uh, but when that happened, the music got me through that. It's always been grist from like what I write too. Early on, in my early records, it was like I would write about you know relationships or things that had gone wrong, and it, it got to the point where I'm going to have to find some new topics because this is like you know I'm just like flogging a dead horse here. Because if I go back and like sing a lot of those old songs, it's like man. I'm glad I'm not in that place anymore. Yeah, but so, it, so it, it takes you back there. It was cathartic. It got me through all that, and that's really, you know, it, it, and I made music out of it, and I made money off of it, and it, it healed me, you know? Yeah. I'm grateful. It's, it's, it's a blessing, and it's a curse, too, because sometimes you just want to have a peaceful, normal life, but then that is your peaceful, normal life, yeah. you know, where I'm not having to travel four five six months a year and it'll all and i'm not that i'm not grateful for it i appreciate the silence and the peace and just like looking at the trees and listening to the breeze now you know things as i got older i learned to appreciate simple things and realize that's where it's at wow thanks jim for sharing that was uh wow thanks a lot Jim, give it, why don't you take off on your commercial plug? <laughs> give our audience a, a profile on some of your albums that they need to check out on Spotify, on, on iTunes, at the store. You can buy them. You can buy the uh, downloads. Uh, you can download this music on jimsuler.com, J-I-M-S-U-H-L-E-R, as well as the other digital outlets right. online like the ones you mentioned. Uh, of course, Amazon, all those places has it. You right. can pick them up at the gigs. I mean, I've been recording, putting out CDs since 1993. Some of my favorites are the, the latest one, Live at the Kessler. Oh, I love that one. From 2016. And uh, Tijuana Bible, 
bad juju. Yeah. I mean, some of them are I, I like more than others, and some just are exactly the way I heard it. Others are not as fully realized when I go back and listen to it, but. I think you could speak to anybody who's put out music that would say the same thing. Well, yeah, what I always hear, if you put out a song on, a, on an album, and then over the next two years as you play it, it evolves. Exactly, right. And just some of the things, I really like the way they've evolved. Again, I've done some you know, several records with George Thorogood and played on an you know, Elvin Bishop record. And to me, like the, the greatest compliment I can get is when somebody like I admire... Right. records my song. So, you know, like when Bugs Henderson recorded my song Starvation Box. Yeah. I was like, if you had told me that when I was in high school, I, I would have like, I can quit now, you know? Right. Just stuff like that. Your Thoroughgood records my stuff. and Well, that's great. But just to, to get the friendship or, or respect to people that I revere is like, I mean, I'm always a fanboy in that way. Yeah. I don't, see myself as all you know as in with any hype I, I i just want to be grounded and and play and try to just keep doing what i'm doing i love it i don't too. have any illusions for superstardom or i'm just you know it's like if if it's a baseball game i'm a utility player but i'm in the game you're damn right you're in the you game. know and that's all i wanted i i don't really i'm not that interested in in being a star because with that comes a lot more responsibility, and I have enough on my plate already. Well, yeah, and plus what you've talked about recently is you like your space, and sometimes stars don't get space. That's true. You know, it works well with George because he's got a real gift of gab, and he's a great entertainer, and I just play a lot of the stuff that he doesn't want to play or it's, it's something that's not up his alley, you know, right. like musically. He's, but I'll do, do a lot of – fill a lot of those – cracks with what i'm doing and though you know he's been they've been really good to me I, i'm so so thankful and grateful to george thoroughgood for all all he's done for me all right here we are late may the rest of the year's out there laying for you what what have you got uh what kind of gigs do you have lined up what kind of plans do you have for the rest of the year well i'm you know i've got shows with my band booked through the rest of the year clubs and some festivals how far away are you wandering from Texas on some of those gigs? I'll probably no further than, right now, no further than Illinois. Well, that's pretty good. I'm going to uh, to the Netherlands December 1st to play with Alan Haynes. Cool. Uh, just one festival. Yeah, just but they're, I've read they're huge on their blues festival. Th- they like it, and I've been going to Europe since 1993. Like, In fact... I have a follower of a, of my show. There's a follower of my show from the Netherlands. I, I love going over there, and I have a lot of dates with Thoroughgood throughout the rest of the year. Okay. In fact, we're doing a couple of shows uh, with ZZ Top in California in July. Great. I think yeah. So great. Uh, it's uh, I love to see them and see Billy Gibbons. See Billy. He's yeah. been very nice to me too. Good. And and, and what respect I have for him is. A lot. Those first few albums were my favorites, I think. I, I love all his work, but maybe the first four albums, like guitar-wise, are some of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if any of your listeners like that old early ZZ Top stuff, if you go on YouTube, there's some stuff 
uh, if you look ZZ Top, Pensacola, 1971, there's a live show. And, I mean, Billy Gibbons is just tearing it apart. Oh, my God. I, I didn't realize how much he'd listen to Peter Green. Oh, yeah. Uh, For it, those of you who don't know, Peter Green was the Fleetwood Mac that you all know. There was a blues Fleetwood Mac prior to that, and Peter Green was the lead guitarist, one of my heroes. And I didn't really, again, I didn't get to, I wasn't hip to Peter Green until a lot later. Right. <clears throat> I mean, I was hip to Green Manalishi and Oh right. Well and stuff, but right. I didn't really know him. I hadn't dug any deeper than that until I got a little older. So, But when I heard a lot of the early... ZZ stuff, I just went, man, he listened to a lot of Peter Green, and that's a great guy to listen to. Absolutely. I've got a bunch of him over here, as a matter of fact. I loaned him to my neighbor, and he, he hasn't given me the CD back. <laughs> um, but we're working on some new music, too. I'm re- are you? I recorded a couple new songs. Uh, I'm thinking of looking at new ways to, to put music out rather than just release a whole CD. Right. A lot of people are doing that. And just maybe do some download releases and, and see how that works out and just put like singles out right it's a lot more um cost effective for one thing absolutely and i it's it allows me to develop the material put more music out more frequently rather than to wait till i have an album's worth of songs and develop it then you have to record it's a lot of money to do a record and do it right oh man you know yeah so i have to think about those things well jim it's been a treat You've shared some significant stuff with us. I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Any, any final thoughts as we head to closing it out here? Everybody be good to one another. Yeah, that's a nice message. Thank you so much. We'll see you, I'll see you up on stage soon. And all you campers out there, keep listening to some good music. Thanks, Adios. Doug. Sitting in the Treehouse studio, enjoying Jim's playing on the national guitar was a blast. Be on the lookout for Jim and his guitar when George Thurgood and the Destroyers hit your town to play Bad to the Bone, One Bourbon, One Scotch, and other classics. Or catch his band, Jim Suler and Monkey Beat, at a local concert hall. Our guest a few weeks back was John Pettigo. Well, the other night, Muddy and I went to see his concert at the Kessler Theater. Besides writing solid songs, he and his band deliver a great show. Very tight group that gets their message across big time. Be on the lookout for the Pettigo's Magic Pilsner Band. Hey, if you go to an outdoor gig this summer in Texas, number one, drink a hell of a lot of water. And number two, understand the ordeal the band is working through. This past Saturday night, there were outdoor gigs all around DFW. When the artist walked on the stage, it was super close to 100 degrees and felt like 107 or more. The humidity was 40% plus, and once the sun went down, the wind disappeared. Hey, you be safe at the gigs, and take a minute to throw a dollar, bill, or two, or three in the tip jar. Late in May, Wendy Birdsell walked across the stage at SMU to receive her bachelor's degree in applied physiology and sports management. This graduate is a little different. Wendy was kicked out of her home at 14, dealt with sexual abuse, drug addiction, and homelessness. A few years back, this strong woman decided to change her life. She got a couple scholarships, took out several student loans, and put her head to the grindstone. To get the full details on this strong-willed lady, go to the May 21st issue of the Dallas Morning News Metro section and read Homeless to SMU Grad. How do you tap that story? You don't. Adios, campers. 
For ongoing updates, follow Dogger and Muddy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Till next time, adios. I cannot feel a speak. Punches underwater. Drifting in the open sea. Or is this a dream? Can I see or believe? To trust is too far.